Welcome to The Aperture, a podcast for curious minds and critical social thinkers, hosted by me, Steph Cutler. If you believe a better world is worth consideration, then you're in good company. Each episode, I chat with someone with views and or experiences of a social issue, and at the end, I hand over to a creative contributor who has the final say. In today's episode of The Aperture, I'm talking all things allyship with Leila Akai. I first met Leila when she was head of the Centre for Diversity, Equality and Inclusion at Imperial College London. She brought me in to support with their disability inclusion agenda and we stayed in touch and remained friends ever since. Prior to joining Imperial College, Leila worked at the University of Oxford, firstly in student recruitment, specialising in increasing the representation of applications from students from a global majority background. She then went on to pioneer innovative race and religious belief equality initiatives at Oxford's Diversity and Equality Unit. Leila has since gone on to set up her company, Diverse Minds UK, where she works with organisations to create happy, equal and mentally healthy workplaces through speaking, training, coaching and consultancy. Our poet today is Annie Roxon. Annie's talent for poetry was first recognised at the age of 10 when Cherie Blair visited her primary school. Recognition of her talent continued and so Annie began performing her poetry and has done so at venues such as the Mayor of London's office, the House of Commons and the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park and at festivals such as Lovebox and the first ever Winchester Poetry Festival. She also had a poem featured on the first ever Instagram poetry exhibition. Annie's creative response will follow the conversation I had with Leila Akai. to start by asking you because I know you've worked in the race equality space for you know 15 years plus about your thoughts and feelings about where we're at currently and in particular the the Black Lives Matter movement. What I do keep saying is that you know Black Lives Matter is actually 600 years old really as in if we think about the systemic injustices, if we think about colonialism, if we think about the way that black bodies have been treated, it's not new, but this particular wave, you know, it's horrific what happened, but I'm pleased that it's gotten more people to sit up and we're, you know, we're able to have conversations that we couldn't have before. And I was looking at a presentation that I did last year for a reciprocal mentoring program for an institution. Um, So it's black staff and staff of color in an institution that were reciprocally mentoring senior white staff. And the content of that presentation last year was about culture. We couldn't necessarily talk about race in the same way they could now. And now what's great is I've had the license to kind of rip up the traditional rule book, if you like, and we are talking Mm. about white fragility. We're talking about white privilege with senior white staff. We are talking about colonialism. We are talking about white savior complex, things that I just think people would have walked out of the room before and now I'm not saying it's perfect at all and I feel that we can start to have these conversations and there yes there is still defensiveness um, in some cases but at least I can put these slides up and we can have conversations about them so I think in terms of allyship and kind of where people are aiming to go what they 
you know what might have been their blind spots i feel that there has been a slight change in the fact that people are willing to think about well where are my blind spots how do i illuminate them i need to start thinking about these things and actually this is really flipping uncomfortable and i have to sit with that and do my own work mm, and that we even have blind spots you know yeah and i think yes. you're right to um, acknowledge that black lives matter is not a new phenomenon you know mm. and yet it it kind of can feel a bit like that because of the prominence right now. It feels like there's a shift taking place. And whether that leads to fundamental social change is not the same as a shift. Black people in my network saying, we, we can finally start to have the conversations that need to be had. You know, this is actually quite cathartic for me. This, is, mm-hmm. this feels different to it has before in terms of the openness um, to at least recognize you know power and privilege and those kind of conversations which aren't easy to have are they no and it's I think it's fascinating for me that I I sometimes I struggle to wrap my head around the fact that it's so difficult for people because those of us who identify as being from communities of color or global majority, black global majority groups, um, we have to think about this and have conversations about this most days. Mm-hmm. Um, I also am very aware that I'm not um, I'm not black. In, I consider myself part of the black with a capital B political movement, but I know that I'm not black in terms of how um, other black communities would identify my skin color. So also the other thing I wanted to mention is within British South Asian communities, we've also got a hell of a long way to go on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, we've got this, the structures that have been created uh, by whiteness and that do privilege white communities. But I think often my experience of British South Asian communities is that they can pander to that they don't want to challenge it and there are certain horrific perceptions around blackness around colorism around shadism that we need to start having conversations about and i know that you know i've had conversations in my south asian female membership group and people are receptive to that but what i think a lot of the group have struggled with is how do we have those conversations with our families also how do we have those conversations when a lot of you know a lot of the, the wider British South Asian community are bi and trilingual and the language we use and how that translates across. So this is a really big thing and we all have to be thinking about it and we all have to be thinking about our own cultural context and how we have those conversations and what we might have to adapt within our own cultural frameworks in order to make headway. And this isn't a one and done. This is a kind of rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, keep going, keep coming from different angles, thinking about it, um, you know, being an exemplar and it, and actually it is exhausting but it's really exhausting for those who have those of us who have to live with systemic injustices day on day and of course that will be a sliding scale absolutely yeah and and it's everybody's responsibility yes yes and that's the thing with institutions and organizations as well Steph that you know this kind of work as we know it's kind of oh right the equality and diversity team are dealing Mm -hmm. with it or someone in HR has been given the remit you know to me it's not just an HR issue at all to me this has got to come from the CEO the COO the CFO the leaders and actually I feel that we're not seeing that in our government at the moment and there's a lot of floundering that does permeate down whereas if we've got a microcosm or an organization that are really clear even if they put their hand up and say we have no idea what to do but we know that we need to do something and we're going to talk to people externally we're going to look at our existing policies and procedures we're going to use our staff networks or develop genuine staff networks um, I think that's great but I think admitting that you don't know everything is actually part of the journey as well yeah I think sometimes that's quite welcome mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Be- 
because it isn't it isn't easy and i appreciate when when your lived experience means it's not easy daily but actually it isn't easy for everybody because you can you can be quite uncomfortable with not knowing um and i think part of what seems to be happening lately is it's becoming a bit more acceptable to say i don't know you don't get the opportunity to create the change or for the right people to be sat around the right tables and so on so that seems to be a bit better lately Mm. I think you're right and I think people are willing to admit they're on a journey I think people are willing to admit they need ally training whether that's on race whether that's on you know about LGBTQIA plus communities whether that's about disability I think we've still got a long way to go with disability actually um, whether that's about you know thinking about the systems that benefit men as a result of patriarchy although having said that you know there was a group wasn't there of Tory MPs uh, that refused to have unconscious bias training now I don't think unconscious bias training is a same as allyship by by a long stretch but um, the form of words they used was that we don't want to be indoctrinated into this woke way of thinking so we've still we we, we know we know we've still got a long way to go Um, and again I think unconscious bias training is part of the journey but I don't think it can totally get people to understand all the systemic injustices and structures that exist and I think a lot of that needs to be based on understanding of history and the development of whose stories get told whose stories get remembered and recorded as well this this idea of allyship seems to have got some traction sort of over the last five plus years you know we had Mm. he for she came out Mm, um from the 2014 from the united nations Mm. um with a with a global effort to you know include men and boys in creating gender equality we have purple allies in the disability space straight allies in the uh, you know lgbtq mm-hmm. space um and white allies it, it mm-hmm. feels as though there's more attention being given to that of late what role can allyship play in creating sustainable meaningful change mm. that's a yeah i really like that question and i think there's that difference isn't there between being an ally and being a savior yes Mm -hmm. so (laughs) and again people say well how do I know I'm an ally and how do I know I'm a savior Um, and when I did a lot of work in the more work in the disability space I was always conscious of that because what you don't want to do is go up to someone and say do you need assistance you know how can I help you oh my god you can't carry that cup of tea or whatever it is Um, So I think part of allyship is that you're going to be on a constant journey and recalibrating a bit like you do with um, like recipes and salt, right? So sometimes you might make something, you put too much salt in it, you make it again, you might put too little. I mean, it's still edible, but you're thinking, mm-hmm. what's the right level? And I, th- I think allyship is that. I think one of the things with allyship is it's that you're never going to know it all um, and you can't know everything about everything because it's just not possible. Um, but it's educating yourself so you have a good base and then learning as you meet different people and how people's lived experiences um, give rise to preferences and how we need to adapt and adjust accordingly to those preferences. So I guess one example is if you've worked with someone with dyslexia um, and one of their preferences is that they use cream paper and they use a live scribe pen, you know, they have an overlay on their computer. Brilliant. Now you might then work with someone else who has dyslexia and actually um, they don't want an overlay on their computer and their dyslexia manifests itself in a different way. And maybe they don't want to use their live scribe pen in the same way that the other person did. Um, it's about saying okay that's cool I, I you know I hear your preferences as opposed to oh but I know all about dyslexia and actually what you need <laughs> is this you're coming at it from the right 
angle, but actually you're not empowering the person. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's that thing around, we have to think about plurality. We have to think about, you know, where we're coming from. And we have experience of working with people from a particular background, from a particular preference, but that won't be everyone who identifies with the same group or um, disability or identity. They will not necessarily want to be treated that way or have the same preferences because they're also individuals. I think that's that's one part of it and, and the learning journey. You're not going to get it right for everybody all the time. I'm- and probably you can't it might be impossible to get it right all the time because like you've mentioned people have different preferences as well as requirements Mm -hmm. and so you know getting it right what what would likely help um is is as an ally is to come alongside Mm -hmm. and listen and then ask the question you know how how might i support you um and and be more reactive having listened as opposed to jumping in i think sometimes mm-hmm. well-meaning people jump in um and and that that then isn't so <laughs> isn't so helpful and in fact can have the can have the you know the adverse effect um and i think that also thing that when you ask questions make sure the questions are for the benefit of the individual and not because you feel nosy or because you feel you've got the right to know because that can emphasize and re-emphasize power imbalances so an example would be um you know you might have been on some allyship training you might be tempted to ask someone about let's say they've got a sensory impairment um you know maybe you think you, you know you're trying to be supportive oh what kind of hearing aid do you have and oh when did you get your hearing aid okay so in some circumstances that might be helpful but actually what you really want to know is um if i switch on the t loops let's test it does it work for you as opposed to delving into the nuts and bolts we don't need to ask those private questions what we need to know is is the environment accessible for you are the systems accessible for you and it goes for race as well do we really need to know where someone's quote unquote really from we just need to know you know do you feel able to feel heard at meetings do you feel you've got a space that's appropriate for you do you have any specific cultural requirements or are there things that you need that we could do better um, and I think to me that's that's the difference and thinking about again you know if we think about parenthood um, and and what people need um, in terms of their caring responsibilities we don't need to know the ins and outs of their caring responsibilities we just need to know about do they need flexible working what does the flexible work pattern look like to them you know if the person they're caring for whether it's a younger dependent or an older dependent need to go to hospital or they, there's an emergency you, you know what's the plan who could who could take over that work what what work could be paused um, and a lot of this is common sense but sadly it's not always common practice yeah I often urge people to to curb their curiosity yeah that's it isn't it yes lovely phrase curb your curiosity because when you're on the wrong side of that regularly mm-hmm. apart from anything it just becomes annoying doesn't it but it does yeah. highlight your difference yeah and, and by all means ask questions but remember that your question should always be um, guided by how is it benefiting the individual so when does genuine allyship work well have you any experiences of that Leila? Um, so interestingly we had a, a conversation about this yesterday in one of the training sessions and we were talking about the so in the world of sports and taking a knee and whether that's American in, in the US context the UK context or other contexts and the question that was asked to me was actually is it okay if white UK footballers take the knee with their black colleagues And I said, well, actually, if there's been a discussion in the dressing room or the boardroom um, or in the players football, you know, the PFA and black colleagues have said, actually, yes, that would be really 
helpful and we feel supported, then absolutely do it. And I think it also sends a message that black lives matter. And by us as, as white individuals or individuals who don't define as black are with our black colleagues doing this. But I think it has to be done with consultation with the individuals and not just assume, oh, this is what they want. So I think to me, that's, that's a really helpful way of doing it. Just thinking about sports and, and the pushback around, oh, you know, sports isn't political. Well, absolutely it is because who owns football clubs? Where does the money come from? That's political. Um, when things go belly up in football clubs, how, are the, how do they get saved? You know, it is all political. And, and I would say that it is also about raising awareness around, um, you know, human life is so, so important. You know, by taking a knee in a really respectful, peaceful way, um, to me, that does demonstrate things. And maybe it starts to get people thinking around, no, this is about, this is about everyone, but we're all, we all need to think about how and, and respond to Black Lives Matter. So that's one example. I mean, that's quite a public example. Mm-hmm. I think um, in terms of an organisational example, it's about being really mindful and cognizant um, around the needs of others. And like you said, you won't always get it right. But let's say there's a new system that's coming into place, a new computer system. Um, and we're thinking about, okay, how's it going to work? And so I think some of the questions that always need to be asked, and it doesn't have to be anyone who's got a sensory impairment or physical impairment, but actually those questions around, okay, so how does this work with assistive software technology? So if people are using Claro Read, if they're using JAWS, if they're using Zoom, um, any assistive technology, actually, before we roll this out, we need to test it. We need to go back to the developers and ask these questions. And that can just be standard on a checklist, right? So it doesn't have to be um, something added on. But to me, that is allyship because it's not a bolt on. You're making it part of the day to day or if we're thinking about um, make it, how make, it part, make it part of a regular brief exactly then it's part or, of your it's part of what you do and then exactly. test it and then come back so exactly it, so so that to me is is a form of allyship isn't it because you're not then expecting the people who use assistive technology to always have to remind people and to always have to be the one to say things Mm. I've got an example of that actually mm. this year, Leila. I was constantly having to self-advocate in order to get mm. information so as I could participate. And I found myself in a meeting whereby I was having to say it once again. And two of my colleagues just spoke up and mm. said, this is not good enough. We're not getting this right often enough, which is a general organizational point, but actually really had my back and said, you know, mm, mm. if this is what Steph needs, not wants, needs, then we need to make sure that this is what Steph has. And I really felt so supported and so appreciative of two people speaking up because they didn't have to, because it doesn't mm. affect them, mm-hmm. but they were mindful enough too. And what it did was it made me feel less alone because when you're the only person mm. having mm. to keep pushing and pushing uh, for the change that you need and that you want to see, and actually it's important to me because it is for me, but it's also for the people who come after me. So I feel a responsibility and obligation to keep, keep, keep keeping on. Mm-hmm. And it takes away that mental load, doesn't it, Steph? Mm. So that, you know, that mental load about, oh, well, you're responsible because you're the person who uses X, Y, Z, or you're the person who feels a certain way. And then it's like, you have to organize it. It's like your thing. Um, and I think w- when people do it in a genuine way, like you gave that beautiful example, it just takes that mental load and that stress off and just alleviates the brain space. I, I think felt, sometimes. I felt immediately... Mm better and less stressed Mm. it meant that I could participate better sometimes 
you just have to call it out. Uh, I think the line can be blurred when people end up speaking on your behalf or for you. I think mm-hmm, there's, mm-hmm. A, there's a line to tread mm-hmm. about coming alongside and speaking in support of. Um, and when you get that right, I don't think mm-hmm. you can go too wrong then, actually. Mm, agree. And I guess it crosses over to the point we were discussing earlier about when are you an ally and when are you a saviour? So it's that speaking over, isn't it? It's that mm-hmm. speaking over, speaking for. But again, if you're in a meeting where that individual or that group of people are not present and you've consulted with them and then you say, well, actually, I've, I've done a bit of research and consulted and this is what this group of people or this person needs. Then again, that, that's different because you've, you've done your homework in a way mm-hmm. and you're speaking with authority because you've consulted them and they don't have a space at that table. And part of that allyship could be you know I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of you know this group of people or this individual but actually I think we really need to have them in this room and at this table yeah uh, question, question why they're not there exactly because um, because you can't really talk about allyship without talking about power and privilege mm-hmm. definitely and I think it, it's that thing and, and who gets power and who gets privilege and why and if we look at the top team of I would say, you know, 99% of medium to large organisations will see that the representation is not often there, is it? It's very, very lacking. You know, the system is still very Victoriana in the UK. It's designed, I think, for uh, white heterosexual men of a particular height, in fact, who um, go home to their you know, traditionally, you know, in Victorian times, they would go home to a wife who had been looking after the children. And if they were middle class or upper middle class or upper class, they would have also had home help. Um, and that just, you know, that system isn't really working anymore. So why on earth do we have it? But anyway, that's another podcast episode, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't always apparent to white people, the power and privilege that they have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think sometimes that can feel a bit like words that some white people can't really associate with if they don't understand fully the systems that they live and work within because um, they don't always feel very privileged and they don't always feel very powerful but it's all relative yes and that was something else I was talking about yesterday so um, there have been some examples actually Steph in Bristol where there have been uh, white families who have been incredibly disadvantaged so socioeconomic disadvantage where they're living off two cans of baked beans in a day and it's it's horrific um, and absolutely something has to be done about that and so when communities who are socially disadvantaged whether it's inner city or rural areas and they feel um, very marginalized and they hear the term white privilege of course I, it's understandable why people are going to bulk at that Mm-hmm. because you know that's really going to rile them and and I and I understand that and then maybe they turn on the tv and they see um you know very accomplished very famous black musicians black actors black business people whatever it is and think how dare someone say that I've got white privilege look at these rich people mm-hmm. and so I think this country does have a problem actually with pitting pitting white British people from low socioeconomic backgrounds against each other I think I think it personally you know I do think it has been a political strategy and you see it in the media all the time I think what the thing to think about is that of course people from white backgrounds who identify as white can can experience horrific um, circumstances but that usually um, more cases than not their skin color doesn't add to that so what do I mean by that they're much less likely to be stopped and searched they're much more likely to have the freedom if they have the funds to travel to not be stopped and searched and be suspected of terrorism um, now I know that's shifted because of course Northern Ireland with Irish communities they face stop and search in the 70s 60s 50s etc um, also they're much more likely to uh, get a job so again I know that people struggle to get jobs especially now now, but if you look at the stats, you're four times more likely to get a job with a white 
sounding name than you are with an African or Asian sounding name. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, if you're in the depths of despair and there's no support for you, these things don't matter because your lived experience is going to scream all of these things. So I think I think the key thing, again, if we think about allyship is how do we as society as a whole support people who are in these horrific situations by lobbying our government, by thinking about the welfare systems um, and by having sustainable jobs and not zero hour contracts. So there's allyship on a micro, macro, organizational, societal level. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, we also need to realize um, and this is and, you know, this is what right right wing groups, how they prey on people's vulnerabilities um, is, of course, this. And it creates a more divided society. So if we can all start talking about privilege, because we all have certain advantages, I often say you know privilege is a bit like currency that just because I have brown skin doesn't mean I'm not privileged in every single area I grew up with a lot of privilege actually Mm-hmm. So often you hear about this immigrant story. Oh, you know, and for some people, the, the children, you know, the children or the second or third generation have more privilege than their parents. In my case, it's not the, it's not the case. Uh, you know, my parents had a lot more privilege than I do. So, um, you know, I think we all need to start thinking about the privileges we have. It could be our skin color. It could be our socioeconomic status. It could be where we live. It could be the school we went to. Um, but also that there are certain things that are woven into the fabric of our structure, which mean that white communities will still have an advantage, even though in the moment they have extreme social disadvantage, but also how we need to help and support people in an appropriate way and challenge the systems that tie people down. Leila, thank you for that. I just wanted to end on what might you suggest for people listening, thinking, yeah, I get this more. I wonder what I could be doing. Um, But I just wonder if there's a few kind of principles that would be worth sharing. Um, so I think the first one is around how do you educate yourself? So thinking about, you know, what is my thought process about the systems? What are these systems? So I would say, you know, educate yourself about patriarchy, educate yourself about the ableist uh, viewpoint. So in effect, learning about the social model of disability, educate yourself about um, systemic racism, educate yourself about heteronormative values, and also you know, read around age discrimination or, or age perceptions. And some of us might have, I think usually there's a better understanding of that because our age changes as we as we grow up and we might notice different things about that um, now this doesn't have to be oh my goodness I have to read <laughs> university sociology textbooks although if you want to do that go for it but I think the positive thing is there's so much on Instagram they're good they're good people on Instagram they're good people to follow on Facebook um, they're good people that we can follow on Twitter and not be sucked into the negativity there's not an excuse to not know anymore mm-hmm, because mm-hmm, there, mm-hmm. there's so much information available to us it, it's up to us to choose what we listen to what we choose to read who we choose to spend time with um so in a sense that isn't such a difficult suggestion to fulfill is it and then i think the second thing steph is to ask yourself some tough questions so um a book uh, you know leila saad not not me another leila she's written a book (laughs) white supremacy and me and it's actually a workbook um and that's an example of of one tool you know why i'm no longer talking to white people about race Yeah. yeah all of these things but you know ask yourself questions and they might be really really tough questions you might want to just reflect on them yourself you might want to talk about them with your friends and your family members or your colleagues you know listen to speakers again I know we're we're sort of in a weird quasi lockdown there's lots online now so um, and I know that's exhausting too in a way but pace yourself and 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 also you know there's there's asking questions to people that you want to support but don't make them responsible for your education so um, ask yourself those questions after you read or go to events and then the third thing is to think about small steps that you can take so you know, examples um, could be diversity in recruitment is always, always a hot topic. But 
lots of places aren't really recruiting right now. So you could think about retention. How do we retain the talent we have? When we start to recruit, what could we do to make sure that we're putting our job adverts in places that we don't usually, so it's not the same old, same old? Who are the headhunters that we use for recruiting jobs? And actually, how do we know the headhunters or the people that are work that we appoint um, from recruitment agencies are trained properly? Because nine times out of 10, they're not. They don't do this work. You know, they, they just want the money on the table. And I hate to be crude about it, but they don't do enough work in this area. So what are the questions that we can ask them? Um, do we think a staff network is an appropriate way forward for us? If so, how do we do this in a genuine way and don't just go, oh, you know, they're a wheelchair user, they're black, they're uh, 75, let's, let's get an age group, a race group and a disability group. Maybe those people don't have any interest. Um, but what are the ways in which we could ask quick quick questions to ascertain how people experience the culture and then build an action plan as to how we're going to improve things. And I also think it's about that tweaking refinement. Why not look at what other organizations are doing and what's worked? Um, you know, join organizations like Purple Space. Um, you know, consultants can absolutely help. I'm not saying they're the whole entire answer. Um, and really hold people accountable. I think one of the ways that people can be held accountable in a positive way is if you have appraisal systems or sometimes they're called constructive conversations, whatever your mechanism is to ascertain performance why isn't there a question in there about firstly how are you but how are you and having that conversation mm -hmm. about mental health and well-being but secondly oh what are the things that you're doing to contribute to our you know being an ally whether it's with a small a or a big a because I think it's also about taking that blame away, Steph, and, it, and making it um, a, a learning curve. Now, clearly, if someone does something super offensive, um, you know, you've, we've got policies and procedures for that. But maybe someone um, used the term BAME and another member of staff uh, said, actually, can you not use that? And I'd prefer you to use the term global majority. You say, thank you so much for telling me. I'm really sorry. I won't do it again. And maybe that's part of your conversation that actually we shouldn't be using the term BAME anymore. We need to work towards using global majority. This is the feedback I have. So from now on this is what I'm going to do as part of your journey and that's a small example but we know that language makes a huge difference. Huge thanks to Layla there a really insightful conversation loads to go away and think about. Layla mentioned recruitment so how you recruit where you recruit and who you choose to recruit on your behalf. Um, I wanted to jump in here with just a quick recommendation because I sit on the board of Prospectus as a non-exec director and I'm constantly impressed with their values-led approach to recruitment. It's really refreshing and they take seriously all this stuff we've been talking about within this podcast. So if you work in the beyond profit sector and are interested in finding out more, I'm going to leave a link in the show notes. And now over to Annie Roxon. Annie wants to change perceptions through her poetry. She says she knows what it feels like not to have a voice and she hopes that her audiences will be encouraged to speak out and create more positive communities. This makes Annie our perfect poet to join us on our episode on allyship. What language do you speak in? Is it one of privilege or is it one of power? Do your words break down or reconstruct the power? Can we dismantle the system with a binary language that imprisons? Do we speak to truly listen or to reaffirm our own vision? What language do you see in? Is it one of insight or getting things right? In a system where being wrong is weaponized are our attempts to conversate ammunition to prove that we belong? 
in a society that tells us we are powerless and not that strong? Are our endless debates authentic attempts to emancipate? Or battles with ourselves because our identity is at stake and when you use their tools to try and educate? Do you rebirth love or do you end up rebirthing hate? What language do you educate in? Is it one of freedom or one of oppression? Do you teach to overpower or break free of suppression? Do you point the finger at other worlds? Do you choose to unlearn for yourself? With constant exposure and no closure, do you unwillingly contribute to an unhappy world? Can we accept another if we don't accept ourselves? Are we searching for answers or actually screaming out for help? What language do we build in? Is truth our foundation? Do we lean into blame or recreation? Can multiple truths be held all in one space? Our bodies are infernos of both love and hate, and our actions can reveal to us what our minds really want to say. We can break into new paradigms if we are willing to confront our own pain. I see our hands clasping for dreams of better days. We will never exhaust our options. There will always be another way, but not one built in a system where our minds are meant to be enslaved. What language do you speak in? Is it one of privilege? Or is it one of power? Or is it a language that we create? One that is truly ours. That's it from me, Steph Cutler. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe so you don't miss a future episode of The Aperture on Apple, Spotify, YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please like, share, leave a review and The Aperture can be found on Facebook and Twitter. This episode of The Aperture was produced by VI Podcasting. See you next time for more social change thinking.